Hi, I'm Daniel Wordsworth. For more than 30 years, I've experienced war zones, natural disasters, refugee camps, and sprawling slums. Now I'm going to show you a better and more optimistic world. This podcast is Finding Good. Thank you, Daniel. Uh, my name's Fitz. I'm kind of like a tour guide. co-host. I'm yeah. co-host. Right. You're going to go with co-host now. Wow. <laughs> wow, I've got a new title. A tour guide, whatever you a tour want. guide through your story's life and brain. Mm-hmm. That's how I like to think of it. Uh, thank you for subscribing. Make sure you rate and review the show on Apple or Spotify, wherever you listen. Uh, it means a lot and it helps the show be discovered. Now, we've got a lot of questions. Really? There's questions on the website. There's questions from people that are listening, and I have a lot of questions just from uh-huh. things you've said in previous episodes. So I, I'm going to sort of fire some questions at you, mm-hmm. and if you could just go with them, <laughs> right. that would be great. Mm-hmm. Now, first question I have for you, you, you talked about joining the Navy as a kid. Yeah. Right? You were how 18. Old? 18 years old. Mm-hmm. Naval pilot. Why naval pilot? Well, as far as I'm concerned, who doesn't want to be a naval pilot? Right? You, you know, there are things when you, you're just in your early life, you're like, I want to be that, Right. I just wanted to be a jet pilot in the Navy. Well, I wanted to be a jet pilot, and then I thought, who are the coolest jet pilots? And then the Navy ones are, clearly, mm-hmm. right? White uniform, aircraft carriers, all that. This is pre-Maverick, um, by yeah. the way, pre You've lost that love and feeling? Oh, it was pre-all <laughs> of that. <laughs> and yes. But um, uh, so I, I wanted to be that, and I wanted to fly airplanes. I love flying airplanes, and uh, there's a whole bunch of stuff associated with that, and I wanted to be in the military. So you're an actual pilot? You have a- I have a commercial pilot's license, yeah. Do you fly still? Uh, no, I'd like to, but it's a little bit pricey. Have you ever flown <laughs> helicopters or just planes? I only have I only have I only have fixed wing license. But no, when I when I'm in the navy, they take you on all those things, right? Yeah. So you know, you pick what you want to be. If you want to be a submarine person or a battleship person or a, um, it's called fleet air arm, right? Which is the air wing. Yeah. Then what they do because you're studying, so you're doing all the study in the classrooms and things, and running around with guns above your head and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But then they want to give you nice moments, and so if you like submarines, they stick you on submarines on the weekends, or you go out for a week or so. For me, they put me on helicopters, so right. I got to sit on those. When you you talked before in the earlier episodes about deciding, you know, when you were in the navy that you, you were going to go and help people, you wanted that was your calling. You wanted to help people. Yeah. How does that happen? You go to a commanding officer and you go, "I want out of the navy." Well, they don't it- tend to let you out. You're enlisted, right? Yeah, it's a bit of uh, – yeah. So what happens is <laughs> when you join the Navy, right, they have this thing called return of service obligation. Yeah. So if you are doing four years of training, you have to give them four years back, so four plus four and then one extra. Right. So it's called the return of service obligation, nine years. So I was doing four years to do general – when you're a naval officer, they teach you all the things. So you had to drive about, you had to do all these things. And then you become a, like a – it's like a doctor specialty, right? Mm-hmm. So you become a naval officer who can drive battleships, et cetera, warships. And then you become a helicopter pilot or a jet pilot or a submariner or a whatever, right? Yeah. It gets added on top. And so it was going to be four years to become the normal officer and then you, I do flight school. So for me it was going to be 11 years that I was going to sign up. And at the end of the first year – or no, it wasn't the end of the first year. It was during the first year I was in the Navy. We had that moment, right, which I think all um, – people that join the military have, right? I, I'm there and we're doing weapons training and there was a chief petty officer. His name was Marsh. Of course, he was called Swampy. And he, <laughs> we, had a, we had an automatic rifle. And at one point he says, holds the rifle out and he says, what is this for? Oh, he says two things actually. The first thing on this automatic rifle, it has a little black nub at the end. He says, what's the little black nub at the end for? And we said, that's to fix bayonets, chief. You know, it's like you've seen in the movies where they have the right and they charge and yes. they have the bait and knife on the end. He goes, that's to fix bayonets. And he says, but I want to remind you, we are in the Navy. We are on warships. 
if the time comes <laughs> when you have to fix bayonets, a lot of things have gone wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so we were, we were laughing at that. We thought that was hilarious. Yeah. And then he says, and what's this? And he points at the end of the gun. We go, that's the end of the gun. He goes, this is the sharp end of the gun. You point this at people that you want to kill and you pull the trigger. And then everyone stops laughing. And then he says, are you all ready to do that? And I, I thought about that for a lot after that. I just thought, am I really... Which is uh, that's the mean that mm. wasn't he wasn't being glib. He's asking a real question. Well, it's a, it's something you have to face ultimately if you you if join the military. Correct. And I and I think at the end of the first year, I thought I don't know that I want to do that. I love flying, right? Who wouldn't? Want, I loved mm. flying, but I thought I don't know if I want to do that. But that's and kind of the cost of admission, right? That's the cost to allow me to be that sort of pilot. Was that? Yeah. yeah. And then I, at the end of the first year, I said, I can't commit, I don't know yet. And, w- and what I realized the military is very good at, the military makes you what they want you to be and you can't stop it, right? And so I, I, I thought they're going to make me and mold me into this certain person, right, a warrior of some kind, mm-hmm. and do I really want to be that? So at the end of the first year, I said, I have to resign because I'm just not ready to make the commitment. And they said, we'll give you one more year to think about it. And it was in the, toward the end of the second year that I, um, I just said, no, I felt a calling to help poor people. And so I came back to the commanding officer and said, oh, not the base commanding officer, but my division's commanding sure. officer. And I said, I'm, I know it may sound, but I think God wants me to help poor people. And so I want to go and do that. And it did seem out of character. So you avoided having to point that end of the gun at anyone. Yeah. Have you had that end I've of the gun? I've had that end of the gun pointed at pointed me. Pointed at you is <laughs> yeah. what I Yeah, that was my next question. Yeah, yeah. And did you revisit that moment in that moment and go, I used to be on the other side of this and I didn't want to be there and I certainly don't want to be on this end of it either. When was that? When was the, the gun pointed at That's happened a few times but um, the one really worrying time was in January of 2002 in northern Afghanistan. So I was driving, um, this is after 9-11, right? So the war was, you know, in Afghanistan, the war was going on. The mm-hmm. Taliban were being um, pushed out at that time. And the, in the north of the country, the fighting had been between the Northern Alliance in one city and the Taliban in another. And I was one of the first aid workers back into the north of the country after 9-11. And we were working in a city called Kunduz. And that's where, do you remember in the news when there was this guy called Chris Walker Span, the American Taliban, that got yeah. taken prisoner? So he'd been taken prisoner in, in Kunduz a month before I was there, right? So it was during all that time. The Delta Force guys, you know, the Americans with the beards and their quadrant, they were all there. And what would happen is um, there was a big refugee camp there that we were working in. And... Uh, the city, though, was still not fully in anyone's control. And so what we would do is we would live in this place called Talakan, this one city that was relatively safe. And then you could work in Kunduz during the day, but you couldn't be there at nighttime. And you couldn't be on the road in between at nighttime because the bandits and the Taliban come out. Right. And so what we do is we would live in Talakan and we would wake up in the morning as soon as the sun rose. We would jump in this Russian jeep, me, um, the driver, Bayan, our translator, and at the time another aid worker called Dollar, and we would race. This it was an hour and a half road, and it's like Afghanistan is the most majestic, spectacular country you can imagine. And this was winter in Afghanistan, and so you're driving on this big long road. There's craggy, snow-capped mountains. There's deep Afghan canyons. There are all these sort of bombed-out dwellings and tanks everywhere, and 
Uh, there's landmines and because uh, you're driving over the front line. Uh, it was no longer the front line, but it was, right, for 10 years. And so we were driving. It's an hour and a half to drive there and you're in this Jeep and you had to get, we had to get into the Tankundas. Then we work in the refugee camp. We do all the work that we're doing there. And then we leave before the sun sets to drive back to get into Talakan before the night comes. Mm-hmm. So that's what we were doing every day. And I'm, not, I'm really not a morning person. So I'm not good in the mornings at all. Yep. So in the car, so I'm in the Jeep. I'm in the front seat and uh, driver, dollar, bayan. And we're driving along. And about halfway, there's this like um, – now what had happened is um, all these guys there had experienced the American bombing and American missiles. So they're very scared of the Americans. And we're driving along. And there's an old bombed-out house on the side of the road. And someone had laid a tank track across the uh, road. And the tank track, they laid it up the other way. So it's got like the spiky bits, right? So the driver slows down to go over the tank track. And then out from this, uh, you know, like mud dwelling, four guys come out. Three with Kalashnikovs, you know, the ones you see in the movies those with those. Yep. And one with that RPG, you know, the, that yeah, big the that bazooka. RPG, the bazooka-looking one. So they come running out. And the guy with the RPG is standing in the front off to the side and then the other three, there's one there in my window, one on the window of the driver and then one behind so we can't reverse. They're screaming and shouting and one of them's banging my windows up and he's banging his like, Kalashnikov on the window. So I was winding the window down. <laughs> and then he's screaming at me through this window. I was looking at him. And uh, Bayan, the, our translator, shouts something in uh, Dari, in the Afghan the mm. language of that area. Shout something. And the guy on the my window is like this, and he body, does a double body, take. Body the gun at yeah, he does it like a, a comic double take. Yeah. And then he shouts to the other three guys, and they all do, right, like a comic double take, right? right. It's like, oh, and then the four of them run off. The driver <laughs> puts the thing in gear, Go, we go over the tank track. I, I, I fell back to sleep at that time. It's early <laughs> you, in the morning. You went back to sleep. sleep. And then we drove into Kunduz. <laughs> And we pull up in Kunduz. And before we used to go to the refugee camp, we would always have a cup of tea and we would have this nice bread that has honey on top. And so we were sitting there and I was thaw- thawing out. It's minus like 10 degrees. Mm. I was waking up. And so I said, Bayan, what, what happened back there? And he said, um, well, they were shouting at us. I go, yeah, I, I know. What, what were they shouting? He goes, they were shouting, get out of the car, get out of the car. This was a real bad time. This is the Pearl. Remember the Daniel Pearl time? The guy that got the journalist that got the... Oh, yes, 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 yes. You didn't want to get out of the car. No. And uh, they're shouting, get out of the car, get out of the car. And then I said to him, well, what did you say? And he said, I said, be very careful. These two are Americans. Right now there is a satellite that is watching everything you are doing. And if you hurt them, they will send a B-52 bomber and they will drop bombs upon your head. And that's when they all did the double take and ran off. And so then I said, Bayan, as long as I am here, you will have a job. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Is that the most scared you've been? Or were you you were too asleep to sort of realize what was going on? Everything just becomes very slow. Right. But because you didn't understand what was happening, you... Well, I did kind of... I think it was just I'm not good in the morning, so yeah. <laughs> but, I'm not good the, in the morning. Uh, Taliban point a gun at your head. Uh, I'm not I'm good not in the morning. Active. Can you I, come I, back this I afternoon? I think what you what you learn on those things is it's it's mostly what you learn is it's very hard for bad things to happen until suddenly it's not. Right. What when, when is the most scared you've been? It's not. That's not really the feeling you have. I, I don't know. Is if, it a feeling you have in hindsight? 
You think yeah, I, I think was it's pretty, like, think I was I, pretty scared. I think it's the same question. And anyone that's in that profession and they're in the middle of doing what they do mm-hmm. and they know technically what they're doing and they're in your, you know, your state, you don't, like, I don't, pilots don't feel fear when there's turbulence, right? Doctors, when they're doing a tight opera, don't feel nervous. What you're always worried about most is not doing your job well. And so for us, you, when you go to a refugee camp, 20,000 people, they've had no one bring them food assistance for um, three or four months and you're trying to get kids, you're worried that there'll be a food riot. You're worried that in that food riot kids get caught up. Mm-hmm. You're worried that you won't get the food there in time, that you're worried. That's all the stuff you're thinking about. You don't really, once you're in those places, you don't really think about the other stuff. In a previous episode, you were talking about potentially being kidnapped. It was the double undie episode, one of my favourites. Yeah. And you said you have... Training. Hostile, call heat training. It's hostile environment awareness training, right. heat. And what, what, are, what are the key elements of that? Like how do you get prepared or trained to potentially be kidnapped Is it, and what's involved in it? So it's part of what World Vision does for all of the team members that go into hostile environments. Mm-hmm. You get trained in advance and you do refresher courses every five years because it's um, certain things they've got to teach you. But, and what they do, it's a simulated environment, right? So actually in this environment, the last one that I did, there was like 25 of us, but there are 30 actors who are doing the – and they're all actually former soldiers. And then they run you through all these things. So they will run you through an exercise where you're in a car and you get carjacked, like I just described. What do you do? They'll run you through another exercise where there's a, a food riot. Like one of the most scared – actually, now that I'm thinking about it, I got caught in a food riot in Haiti in a refugee camp that was a frightening How frightening. does a food riot present itself? When people realize there's not enough food. So say you're doing a food delivery mm-hmm. and you're dispersing food, like you give rations out to people. Yeah. If the rumor goes around that there's not enough food, then the people on the end of the line start uh, getting angry. Right. And so suddenly then the, this rumor spreads that they're running out of food and no one's going to get it and everyone's not going to get it. Everyone pushes forward. And then forward. everybody storms forward and right. they pour over and then they just ransack the warehouse and you can get caught in that. That's scary hmm. because people are hungry and they're really yeah. struggling and they're full of fear and they're not seeing – they don't see you when that's going on. So when you when they're looking at you in that environment, they're not seeing you. No, they, they survival. They see yeah. – it's a primal instinct, right? There's something else has kicked in. So – but they teach – on this heat training, you, there's a food riot, right? So you go in and you pretend your aid worker's delivering food and then they riot and then they show you what to do in those environments. Then they do one where you're walking, you're in a convoy and the convoy comes under attack uh, with – then there's another one, you're in a village and then mortar bombs start. And they use blanks, so they use simulated machine guns, they use simulated explosions, so it sounds like real bullets, it sounds like real guns, real explosions. They then also inter- they put a hood on you for hours oh and then God. you get interrogated in a room and they play this crazy music that the CIA's built that's – at the time, we didn't tell us that. I was listening to this music thinking – this music sucks. <laughs> and then I find out later it's specially designed to suck. Because right. I was there for an hour. This is dreadful. This music. Can't think of anything better than this. And then it turns out it was on purpose. Right. The bad music. <laughs> it sounds very Balinese, i got to say. But, um, yeah, that was that. So you do the heat training and it's all simulated. And what they're trying to do is just build in, like, what do you do in a car? How do you get out into all those sort of things? That could be really triggering for people. As part of one of the trainers that are there yeah. is a psychologist. Okay. They do all the trigger stuff in the advance. You do a psychological survey before you go. Mm-hmm. The psychologist does an individual interviews with people before they go to understand what could trigger you. Yeah. So it's very carefully managed process and also powerful. Not a great team building exercise if there's any corporations out there thinking looking for a, you know, 
a team building exercise for their company. It's an awesome one, um, really awesome one, unless you suck because if you're the leader <laughs> and all things start going wrong and you start crying and running around screaming, it's not good. I think you should write a book called You Should Suck Less because you've mentioned that a few times. That's my management principle, number one management principle. Suck less. Stop sucking. Stop sucking. I have a three-step thing. Stop sucking, act normal and then take opportunities. That's like the CIA's interrogation technique. What is it? Is it deny everything, admit nothing and start throwing counter-accusations? You you mentioned your father. He was a single dad and it was you and your brother that were growing up in country New South Wales. And so how did the rest of you, how did your brother and father feel when you ran away to the Navy? I'm not sure my father noticed. I know for sure my brother didn't. <laughs> <laughs> he said, where's that guy? Where's that well, kid gone? Wasn't there someone else in this house? Uh, he's like, there's a lot more food. He was just, there's a lot more food that was available. I, no, my father tells me that he cried all the way home, but I don't remember thinking at the time that he would have. But um, he's a loving dad, but... Uh, he wasn't, and I don't know if it's just a feature of that time, right? I'm Gen mm. X. I don't know that he ever asked me once how I was doing or what I was thinking. Yeah. I think if you had said to him, if you ever asked your son what he's thinking, he would have said, why would I want to know that? Yeah, he's probably thinking about <laughs> football. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Nothing of, you know, whatever. Because I was actually one of those real thoughtful type kids. But yeah. yeah. The other people in your area of work, the aid workers around the world who have families, and they, their families must get concerned. You know, you're doing heat training. Surely do you normally share those sorts of things with your family? So we never ever force a person. You know, if you work for an organisation like World Vision, you don't have to go to any of those places, right? right? You're not, you're, and there's no even slightest bit of pressure to go to any of those mm. places. You don't have to. Um, but many people in this type of organisation want to. Yeah, that's what I want to do. And then when you get in relationships, you have to find somebody that's okay with that. Otherwise, it's very unfair on them. Yeah. And so you have to you have to have negotiated that in advance. Now, different for kids because kids weren't there in that initial, you know, um, mm. negotiation. So I just never told anybody. Right. So like that trip that I just talked about with the um, – The telephone. Yeah, no one in my family or friends knew I was in Afghanistan. They thought I was somewhere else. I didn't say I was somewhere else. I just didn't – I just alluded to it. Right. And I never would have mentioned the Columbia thing. So no one would ever know at the time those things were happening. But they, but they would often know when I'm in those those areas. It's just that's who I am. Yeah. And for people listening to the podcast, I mean, in, in a lot of cases it sounds exciting and it sounds romantic, but there's real work that's being done as well. It's not just the stories that come from it, right? There's enormous amount of real work. And, and people would listen to these stories and go, well, I, I want to do that work. Would you encourage someone to, to move into that area to do that as a as an occupation or a living or not even a living, just as a calling? Well, my own daughter, I would say that I have a, the most beautiful daughter ever and she likes doing this kind of work and I've taken her to refugee camps and I've taken her to different places and she loves this kind of thing and I'm happy if she does it and I think it's good. I'm also happy if she doesn't mm. but uh, she wants to do that kind of thing. She's a designer, so she wants to do design in that kind of environment, yeah. not necessarily be sort of the way I was. What, about the work, so yeah, it's um, but the thing about this work is like where art and science meet together. Uh, why is that? One, you're working in incredibly complex situations, right? You know, countries that are already struggling, weak governance, there may be a war going on, civil wars, there's, there's a cli always climate issues. There's all this sort of multiplicity of external threats that are happening in these places. Uh, you then have, you know, events and things and you have like sort of untractable problems like how do I get people out of a refuge so you have all of these things and you have human beings involved and you have human beings involved at all their extremities, uh, extremities of need, extremities of compassion and so you've, it's very heightened 
And so all of this is happening. So it's, so it's deeply human. And at the same time, they need clean water. They need a healthcare provided with the proper, um, you know, medical mm -hmm. standards. They need to have a certain amount of calories every day so that they're well-nourished and their children are well-nourished. Yeah. They need kids can't go without school for very long, so you've got to get them into school. So there's a lot of also technical problems that you have to address. So whether you're going into a city that's under conflict or whether you're going to a refugee camp or whether you're going to a, a rural area that's experiencing profound poverty, there's a technicality to creating a water system, delivering clean water every day on time. There's a technicality around building a clinic and ensuring that medicines get there and that are trained, qualified nurses available to that person. There's a technicality required around supporting agricultural extension and ensuring that people can get to marketplaces to sell their goods. There's a technicality around creating early childhood development for children under five. Then there's basic education up to the year of 11, then through secondary school. None of these things aren't needed just because you're poor or in a war zone. And so the work of it is you have experts on all those things. So often if you drop into an emergency, there'll often be a war you'll go in with a water engineer. You'll go in with an ex a medical two medical team that will go in with you. And everybody starts sort of using their Justice League superpowers, right? And they, you know, do all this stuff. And the international community has set standards for this. So you can't just go in saying, I I'm responsible, is it refugee camp, hundred thousand people. We'll do the water. Yeah. Okay. Well, you have to then provide 13 litres of water per person per day. The flow rate from the tap is a certain amount. The tap has to be a certain distance from everybody in the camp so that minimum standards are reached. So every one of these things, water, education, healthcare, agriculture, all of these have technical standards in like a Bible for how to run a humanitarian disaster and right. you've got to hit all of those standards. And so that's part of the work. Now, you were recently on a hospital boat mm -hmm. on the Amazon. Yeah. Your current role is CEO of World Vision Australia. Right. And you know that. I'm not telling you. Yeah, I'm just, no. <laughs> that's more for the <laughs> listeners. <laughs> if you didn't know that, we've got bigger issues, Daniel. Yeah. No, I and know that it was, every day, believe me. That was part of your role, right, to, <laughs> yeah. to go on this hospital boat. Kind of. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think I've, we've talked about this a little bit. The way I see World Vision, like World Vision is the largest charity on yeah. earth, but the way I, I picture it is, is where like the largest force for good that's driven by everyday people on earth. Yep. And it's like 100 countries and we do these sort of, we span the globe trying to do good things. And I heard about the fact that World Vision has a hospital boat mm -hmm. that goes up and down the Amazon and it goes into these indigenous communities and it provides treatment. So it has doctors on it, nurses, dentists, things like that. And so I heard about this boat and I thought, well, we should support that boat. And World Vision in Australia, we don't support it right now. And so I thought, I want to go over and see it. Yeah. And so spend some time on it and see what they do. So when you told me that, in my head, I pictured that Humphrey Bogart, Catherine Hepburn film, you know, where they're on the old steamer going up and down a river. Yeah, no, it's not like that. Yeah. <laughs> He's like a, a wizened old captain. Uh, but it's it's kind of it's there was like a wizened a ferry. old captain was it, was like, yeah, it looks like was. a ferry it's like a ferry yeah, yeah. It, it it actually it has like twenty two berths yeah right yeah so it sleeps twenty two people and it has you know a number of you know doctor surgeries and it has two dentist chairs it has a whole bunch of stuff so I was in your office um, a minute ago and there's all these wonderful new photos from your trip mm. and this is one of them so our listeners can't see this but you can yeah uh, this is a doctor working on a boy who looks maybe eight or nine years old, just yeah. feeling his neck. What's the story with this photo? Because I was intrigued. Yeah, so here's an example of a doctor volunteer. And so this is the way it works in on the boat, meaning there are doctors that have their regular lives and then they come and volunteer for a stint on the boat when we go into these communities. So they're not like permanent. So that's one of the doctors. He actually spent 12 hours on a bus 
uh, voluntarily to get to where we were to get on that boat. And that story, though, is that that boy was brought in by his parents and he was, for one year, he's losing weight and he's eating and sort of they're feeding him plenty of food, but he can't put on weight, he's losing weight and he's becoming sick and no one could see why. And so um, he was brought to the boat when it came and uh, the doctor did that checkup that you see on that picture and what we discovered is he had a tapeworm. So just for one year he had a tapeworm. The tapeworm eats all of the nutrients that go into that uh, boy's stomach and the the boy can't grow. So all we needed to do was give him a tablet, the tapeworm dies and the boy's back to life. So, you know, you can... One tablet. One tablet, yeah. So he's not eating for a year. What what happens if this... Doctor doesn't come along. This boat doesn't come along. He lives with a tapeworm or he yeah. becomes malnourished. What? It would affect his growth. It affects his development and he's going to be much smaller than he ever would be and at some point he's going to have to find treatment it for it. It just seems outrageous that it's one tablet and he's fixed. Yeah. It was very quickly and very readily fixed. And there must be th- hundreds, thousands of these communities that are underserved by these yeah. um, medical boats. Yeah. 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 The Amazon is enormous and the Amazon River is enormous and there's lots of things you can do. And I love that we have a boat and we're doing it. Yeah. You know, I think we have aeroplanes that drop food in places like Somalia. We have a boat on the Amazon. We have teams that are driving into the sort of back blocks of Mongolia. It's a it's an amazing thing to be part of and something that does that. Yeah, wow. Hmm. That's a great Well, There's some fantastic photos and you'll be able to see that, obviously. We'll put it on the socials as well. You know what? I've enjoyed this episode purely because I think we know a little bit more about you and you've got some great stories. Thank you for answering the questions. This has been Finding Good. DanielWordsworth.com is the website address and you can follow along on the socials, review and rate the podcast and share it with as many people as you can. Thank you, Daniel. We'll talk to you next time. You, you can't, no one can hear you not on the podcast, man. We will. <laughs> Thank you, Fitz. See you next time. He's nodding. <laughs>